Good morning. It's good to see you all here. I uh, started to lose my voice in the first service and I started thinking about <clears throat> the last few days. I had football Friday night, watching my son play, and then we stayed for the next game, and then had football practice on Saturday, then was at the, the TCU game uh, yesterday, uh, which I didn't have a dog in the fight, so I was neither wearing burnt orange or purple. Uh, yelling there and so like I'm almost out of voice so if it starts going you may need to throw me a bottle of water Uh, but it's good to see you all I'm excited to open God's word with you this morning we are going to be in John 19 which is where Billy just read the last few verses of 19 a couple things as we get started Um, first of all um, it's important for us to remember where we left off last week if you remember um, one of the last things that John records Jesus saying on the cross is this Greek word teleo, which gets translated, it is finished. And we talked last week about how that also translates paid in full. And you could also translate it uh, in another way, it is fulfilled. And so that really needs to be where we start this morning to understand the the full depth of where we're going to go. Now, honestly, I think in the church um, as a whole, we don't fully understand the significance of the burial. We talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we focus a lot on the death. We focus a lot on the resurrection, but we're not quite sure what to do with the burial. We know it's a necessary in-between, but what's the significance of, of the burial? And to be honest with you, I've never preached these verses that we're going to look at, and that when I was first putting this series together about a year and a half ago, I was tempted to gloss over these verses as just a segue to get us to the resurrection. Uh, But the more time I spent looking at the details that John includes, the more that I'm convinced that these verses are included, that through them we could see who Jesus is, see him as the Son of God, and by seeing and believing we could be saved. I mean, John could have very easily said, and after this Jesus was buried, let's move to the resurrection. But he gives us details about the the burial of Jesus in such a way that it's important for us to take notice. And so we're going to start this morning in verse 38, looking at who was at this burial or this funeral of Jesus. Verse 38 says that after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. So we have this guy, Joseph, who isn't really mentioned previous to this, uh, so we don't have any real understanding of at which point he, he began to grow an affection for Jesus or have a loyalty for Jesus or some motivation for being willing. We, we know that he was scared, Right, so he was a he was a, he was a, a private or a um, kind of a uh, a secret follower of Jesus, but something motivated him to come out of that secrecy, out of the shadows, go straight to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is all four Gospels will include a description of this Joseph, none none of which mentioned him before. Okay, and so here's Mark in uh, chapter fifteen forty three says this about Joseph of Arimathea, that he was a respected member of the council that's important helps us understand why he was so scared he was a member of the council that had jesus arrested beaten and crucified remember the voices of the crowd yelling crucify him 
Those are the voices of the council. When Pilate came before the council and said, hey, you want me to release a prisoner for you? I can release this Jesus guy. They said, no, crucify him. Let somebody else go. Okay? Who, who was the council that paid off Judas with a bribe? It was this council. Joseph was a member of this council. Mark also tells us something else about Joseph. Not only was he a member of the council, he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. And he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So he wasn't just simply um, acting out as, as a courteous actor, saying, you know what, every criminal deserves to be buried. Okay, I'll do this to give dignity. He himself was searching. He himself was longing for the kingdom, and John calls him a disciple of Jesus. And it's hard for us to fully imagine this taking place because it doesn't happen this way in our culture today, but whoever was going to bury the person who was deceased was responsible for everything. So he's got to figure out a way to carry the body of Jesus. So he pulls in Nicodemus, who we know also was a member of the council. We know a little bit more about Nicodemus, though. It's actually in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. We meet Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. So verse th back in John 19, verse 39 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came. But look at what he brings. He brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So at what point did Nicodemus become a disciple or follower of Jesus? We don't fully know. We knew, do know that early on in Jesus' ministry back in chapter 3, it was Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night asking questions about the kingdom of God. John chapter 3 verse 2 says, This man, which is Nicodemus, came uh, to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What a great compliment. You're a special kind of rabbi. The kind of things that are coming out of your life and your teaching indicate that God must be with you. And then Jesus rocks his world and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, of God. And Nicodemus is taken back. And he says, Jesus, how, how can a, man, a grown man be born again? Is he supposed to enter his mother's womb again? How would that even work? It's later on in that conversation that Jesus compares himself to the serpent on the snake that was lifted up in, in the desert for the nation of Israel, that by just looking on this, this uh, serpent lifted up in the air, by looking and gazing upon um, this object, you would be healed and Jesus says in the same way, the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be lifted up for all to see. That simply seeing and believing in him, you will find salvation and healing. We get another test point with Nicodemus in chapter 7. Uh, in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, uh, the Pharisees, the council, had sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. They were ready to, they were ready to do this all the way in, back in chapter 7. But the, the soldiers come back and report to the Pharisees uh, that they didn't arrest Jesus. And the Pharisees were like, what are you talking, why didn't you arrest him? He was right there. And they said, because we never heard anybody teach like this before. So the Pharisees start disputing amongst themselves. In chapter 7, verse 50, enters Nicodemus again. Remember, he's a member of this council. And he says, this is verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And so Nicodemus, we don't know if he's fully standing up for Jesus or not, but he at least has hesitations about the way they're going about it, and he's the voice of reason in the room saying, hey, tap the brake, guys. Are we just going to go after this guy without actually having a legal reason to arrest him and put him to death? And the Pharisees turn on Nicodemus. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Essentially saying to Nicodemus, are you with him? Are you one of them as well? And so you can feel this pressure um, kind of hanging over any of the religious leaders who may have seen something in Jesus that was believable and wanted to believe in him as the Messiah. Now these were the experts in the law. These were the very ones who should have seen the signs that Jesus was performing and pointed at him as the Messiah and announced it to the rest of the nation. We get to chapter 12 in the Gospel of John. It seems like Joseph and Nicodemus aren't alone. Verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, by the time we get to the cross, at some point, evidently something was stirring in Nicodemus and Joseph to the point now where John calls Joseph a disciple, and we see Nicodemus here not only participating in the burial, but bringing a very generous gift to the burial and the funeral of Jesus. What's interesting, though, is beyond these two, we only probably have two, maybe three other people present. In the other gospel accounts, we have Mary Magdalene, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. There may be another Mary who's referred to as the mother of uh, Joseph and James. We know Jesus had a brother, James, so we don't know if this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, or another Mary. So at most, Jesus had five people at his funeral. Let that sink in. The most important, significant funeral in human history And at most, he has five. Joseph and Nicodemus take it upon themselves to prepare the body of Jesus, which means they not only had to carry the body of Jesus before they could could put the the myrrh and the aloes on Jesus' body, they had to actually wash it with their own hands. Their very hands, they're washing the wounds, washing off the blood, the spit, remember, because the, they were spitting on him. I'm sure probably some sour wine in his beard. Remember that from last week? Mocking him, they lift up the sponge of sour wine. I'm sure all that. And so these were the ones who washed his body and prepared it for burial. Now there's something really significant I want us to see about this scene. I'm going to call it the almost but not quite. Before I do that, I just want to think for a minute about how funerals typically take place in our culture and society. I, I looked up some stats on famous people uh, who have passed away. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, if you know this about Abraham Lincoln, uh, but they actually put his body on a train and transported him through seven states, 180 cities, and it's estimated that close to 7 million Americans stood in respect as that train passed by on that journey. Seven million people. How about Princess Diana? This is one that happened in my lifetime. 
where Princess Diana funeral took place. There would only allow 2,000 attendees. It was packed out with 2,000 attendees. A lot of famous people were there. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, the whole group. Outside of the funeral, uh, there were estimated to be uh, three, uh, actually a million onlookers. But on TV, which some I was watching on TV, I don't know if you were, there were at least 2.5 billion watching on TV at her funeral. And it, it cost 3.2 million euros just to pay for her funeral. Here's another one. Any baseball fans? Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth's uh, body was actually uh, put on display in Yankee Stadium for several days. And over 100,000 people came to Yankee Stadium to pay their respects to Babe Ruth to one last time see him there. At his actual services at St. Patrick's Cathedral, 6,000 people were in attendance, and outside in the pouring rain, 75,000 people were there. And we hear those stats, and we think, yeah, these were big people in our culture, big, important, influential people in our society, people worthy of respect and dignity, and then we get to Jesus, and we got four, maybe five. And so what we see here in this scene is what I'm calling the almost but not quite. And it actually goes all the way back to the previous Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a triumphant king, riding on the donkey. The people are out there with palm branches, laying their cloaks down, right? Declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. This is our king, come behold our king. Only to five days later, turn on him and yell out, crucify him. It's, the, it's almost but not quite worthy of what Jesus deserved. We get even to Jesus' death last week, and we saw how just the very instruments of torture were mocking his kingship, the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and that even above his head on the cross, which was unique, there was a sign declaring Jesus king of the Jews. We talked about how the Pharisees, when they saw that, they wanted that change. They said, no, Pilate, you can't put that up there. He's not our king. Put this man claimed to be the king of the Jews, in which Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. And in that, we could hear the voice of Jesus' father saying that over Jesus himself. See, it's almost, but not quite. And now here in his burial, he very easily, if the Romans had their way, he would have been left on the cross to the next day, and his body would have been discarded to the beasts. But from a Jewish perspective, they wouldn't allow a a dead body to remain on the cross onto the Sabbath, and they weren't allowed to take it down on the Sabbath, so they had to take care of it on the day of preparation, which is the day before the Sabbath, and this ended at sundown. So not only are Joseph and Nicodemus stepping in to make sure Jesus gets a proper burial, they're up against the clock. And so last week we read that the soldier had pierced Jesus in his side, water and blood flowed, indicating that he was dead. So now Joseph goes to Pilate and says, can we have the dead body of Jesus so we can give him a proper burial before sundown? Just think about all that. The almost, the almost funeral of a king, but not quite. Even in the description of the myrrh and aloe, we were doing some research on this, our preaching team, and what would be customary for a typical funeral service Um, or burial for somebody who was important would be about five pounds of myrrh and aloe, various spices. The aloe more than likely to treat the skin. Think about 
Jesus' body and the myrrh to give it just a, a pleasant fragrance. Five pounds for a noble, wealthy person, and yet Nicodemus brings how much? I think, I think we don't know this, but I bet he brought all he had. What a random, 75 pounds, right? Joseph's like, who's gonna, who's gonna bring the myrrh and the aloe? And, and Nicodemus is like, I've got some, I'll bring it. Everything that I have, why? Because we're burying a king. Almost, almost, but not quite what Jesus deserved. And we take a step back, though, and we think about what's happening here. And what we see is a beautiful portrait of a loving father burying his son. So I want you to think for just a minute about the familial relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father. I don't know if you know this or not, but John, as the gospel writer, he, he emphasizes this over and over and over. 96 times John in the gospel refers to God the Father. And most of those occurrences are quoting Jesus himself referring to his relationship with the Father. In John 14 alone, which is Jesus' final teaching with his disciples in the upper room, uh, he mentions, Jesus mentions his relationship to the Father 17 times. We'll get into the significance of that in just a moment, but as we read through this, we have to ask questions like, why? Why did the Son of God have to die? And we have, we have good answers. We have biblical answers. Well, because of our sin. We needed somebody to die for our sins. Yeah. Well, then why did Jesus die for our sins? Because he loved us. Okay, well, what's underneath that? Why would he love unlovable creatures like us? And we keep falling that track down. What we're going to get to is this loving relationship between a son and a father. And John wants us to see the, this burial in that context. Now, I think it's also important um, to understand some of the other things that Jesus said in his final hour. So if you go back to the garden, okay, so after the upper room, they leave out and go to the garden, and Jesus is praying. And the Gospel of Mark records his words. He prays these words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So he starts off with a very intimate, familial reference to God by calling him Abba, Father. So this is not the formal sense of Jesus reaching out to his father. Oh, Father, this is the equivalent of a son crying out for Daddy. Daddy, Dad. This intimate cry here from Jesus in his agony in the garden. And, he, and, he, and he, he follows that up with what? You can do anything. Dad, I know all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. This is hard. This is going to be painful. I'm about to step into torture. But did you notice his last statement? Not but what I will, Daddy, but what you will. And so in this simple prayer, we see this loving relationship between the Father and the Son that invokes this powerful statement of trust. We see this again in the Gospel of Luke. 
back in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus is telling his disciples explicitly what's about to happen. <laughs> like he's not sugarcoating it and he's not uh, speaking in code. He's like, hey guys, I'm getting ready to die. And then I'm going to be buried. And then I'm going to resurrect from the grave. And he makes this statement in John 9. He says in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The son of, a man, of man, referring to himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's going to happen in front of your eyes. I'm going to put my life in their hands. That's going to lead to my death and my burial and my resurrection. What's interesting, though, is Luke records Jesus' final words on the cross this way. In verse 46 of Luke 23, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said once again, Father, Dad, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So John's capturing, it is finished. It is fulfilled. It's paid in full. And Luke is recording, God, Father, into your hands, I am committing, I am entrusting my spirit. So here's the significance of what I want you to see this morning. If we go back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he makes a declaration about what he intends to accomplish with his life. This is right after the Beatitudes, which are blessed are, blessed are. Right after that, he makes a statement in Matthew chapter 5. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's referring to the old covenant. And he's saying at the beginning of his ministry, this is what you can expect to see come out of my life. I have not come to abolish the old covenant or abolish the law or abolish the prophets. But instead, look at what he says. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. And so then we begin to understand the weight of the words on the cross when he says it is fulfilled. And he goes even further and says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, listen, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Until what? It is all accomplished. So Jesus didn't come to fulfill most of the law or some of the law or almost all the law. He came to fulfill every dot and every iota of the law. And so I really want you to see two things in that. First of all, there is a, an obedience to the law that's necessary. Okay, for Jesus to qualify to be the lamb who was slain for our sins, he had to live a sinless life, right? He was sacrificed as a spotless lamb. So part of the fulfilling of the law is obeying the law completely. And here's what's interesting. Not just up until his death, but even after his death. You see, Jesus was buried according to the law. And John wants us to see that. That Jesus obeyed the law from birth to death 
and even after death. But here's what we have to understand. Jesus no longer could obey the law. He had to entrust the Father to obey the law for him, to, make, to see to it that he was buried according to the law. You think about that. But it didn't just mean obeying the law. It also meant fulfillment of the law. See, the old covenant wasn't just done away with. It was fulfilled to usher in this new covenant. So that means not only were the laws, was it necessary to obey the laws, every prophecy had to be fulfilled. Everything that was written had to come to pass. So what was the old covenant? The old covenant was quite simple. Obey God's law and you will be blessed. Disobey God's law and you will be cursed. Obey God's law and you will live. Disobey God's law and you will die. That's the old covenant. It's simple enough, right? Yeah, here's the problem. Nobody could obey it. Nobody could fulfill it. It's simple. It's not like God made it complicated. Obey my law and you'll live. You'll be blessed. You'll be my people. Disobey, you'll be cursed, you will die, and you will not be my people. And every human being, every generation has broken God's law. So we needed a new covenant, a better covenant. We needed a new way in. And so Jesus comes not just fulfilling by obeying, but fulfilling from a prophetic sense. Everything that God has written shall come to pass. We see the details here in this John 19 account. They took, verse 40, they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. He was buried even according to the law. Some would say that in this we even see a fulfillment of of one of the Psalms that talks about how the body of the Messiah would not see corruption. See, what's hard to understand is this is different from our customs. Tombs were hard to come by. They're very expensive. So in most cases, you had a family tomb. So when you passed, you would be buried in the tomb where your parents were buried and where their parents were buried. And whatever covered the tomb, whatever stone covered the tomb would be moved or rolled away and it would place your body in there and you would be buried with your ancestors. And so this is unique in that this is the kind of burial that only a wealthy person would receive. To have a grave that's new that nobody has been buried in, it's remarkable. It's the, it's the kind of funeral that only a king or somebody of nobility would have. And to be buried in a garden, he wasn't even buried in the graveyard, he was buried in the garden and we see not only fulfillment of the law and fulfillment of prophecy, but I see a father who is seeing to it that his son has a proper burial. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Fulfill the law. Fulfill the prophets. And so here we have God seeing to it that his son is properly buried. I want to take a minute to go to the passage in Jeremiah, and this is where we'll land today. Jeremiah 31, we referred to it earlier in communion. This prophetic description of this new covenant that God would usher into the world through the Messiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I want to take a minute to talk about that. In this particular prophecy, God refers to himself as a husband to Israel, which was not an unfamiliar reference. Matter of fact, the prophet Hosea picks up on this imagery. And most of the story of the prophet of Hosea includes this idea of God being a husband to a wife, a faithful husband to a unfaithful wife. And the unfaithful wife is the nation of Israel. And so the prophet Jeremiah is saying there's going to be a new covenant coming, not like the old covenant where everybody broke it. There's going to be this new covenant. And he tells us in verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. See, in the old covenant, the law was written where? On stone tablets. And this reference to the new covenant for those who believe is this beautiful forward-looking picture of God's spirit dwelling inside of those who believe writing God's law on our very hearts. That place from within, right? That's, that's, that's pointing you towards righteousness and convicting you of sin. Now to understand this fully, we'll see in just a moment that this comes with also a forgiveness of sin. But this new covenant means that the law will now be written on our hearts. And he says this, and I will be their God and they shall be my people Again, Hosea picks up on this reference and says this, those who are not my people in the new covenant shall be my people. And then after that, in the new covenant, no one shall, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Why won't that be necessary? Here's why. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I want you to hear this. Your primary reason for existing, the reason you have breath in your lungs right now, is to know God and to commune with God. And that's not a a peripheral or a tertiary part of who you are. That is primarily who you are. Moms and dads, it's a significant mantle to be called a mom or dad but that's secondary to you being a child of God you were created to commune with God to listen to know him and I don't mean to know him like you have knowledge of some subject in school to know him in a communal way to know him the way a father knows a son the way a son knows his mother the way a brother knows a sister, the way good friends know one another. This is what you were created for. And this is what comes with the new covenant. This communal relationship with God where you shall know him. You're no longer going to need somebody else to tell you about him. You will know him. If 
for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Listen, church, there are two different types of conviction, okay? The conviction that the Holy Spirit brings in this new covenant exposes the sin in your life that you might walk in forgiveness and freedom. There's another kind of conviction that we place on ourselves or we place on one another where when sin is exposed, we heap up shame and guilt. Okay? One is freedom. One is shackled to shame. We don't teach this a lot. We need to teach more about the idea of repentance. There are two different types of repentance that gets preached. One is where we shackle ourselves to shame. We shackle ourselves to guilt. We beat ourselves for messing up, trying to do better. Now listen, shame and guilt are fantastic motivators, but it will only last so long before it crushes you. Okay? The repentance that Jesus calls us to is this acknowledgement of sin because the law is written on our hearts, right? We confess our sin and we walk in what? In freedom and forgiveness and grace and mercy, no longer shackled and bound to shame or guilt. Listen, I, I want to be honest with you. I think far too often we say we believe the gospel, but we don't actually believe the gospel. That says by your faith in Jesus, when you confess your sins, you are, according to the new covenant, you are forgiven and your sins are remembered no more. So this idea of repentance is that you step forward in freedom and forgiveness. Your motivation for sinning no more is that you've been set free from shame and guilt. And this is the new covenant that Jesus is opening up for us. And to open it up, he has to fulfill every iota, every dot of the law. Everything that God has written must come to pass. This is taking place even while Jesus is in the tomb. So I want to land here today with a couple of things. This is going to set us up for next week to come back and to really celebrate the resurrection together. To see the full power of the resurrection, the full significance of the resurrection, what it means for us. But here's where I want to land today. Have you come to the place in your life? Listen, I'm not asking you if you have Christian t-shirts that you wear, if you listen to Christian radio, or even if you call yourself a Christian. Here's the question. Have you come to the place in your journey? We don't know when it happened for Joseph and Nicodemus, but at some point something happened. Have you come to the place in your journey where you have said to God, into your hands I entrust and commit my spirit. Into your hands I trust you with my salvation, the forgiveness of my sins, and my eternal life. Like this is what it means to be saved. There's not like a, a, a super special prayer if you come down to the front and click your heels twice and say this prayer all of a sudden you're a Christian like this takes place in the depths of your soul and if you haven't made that decision I'm going to pray for you that before you leave your day you'll talk to somebody what does it mean to trust Jesus what does it mean to to say to God the Father into your hands I commit my spirit we'll have prayer partners at the front We'll have elders out in the commons who would love to talk with you and pray with you about making that decision. Listen, church, for those of you who've come today and you are in Christ, I want to talk for just a minute about that trust piece because maybe there's something going on in your life 
right now that you need to entrust into the hands of the Father. You, you know it. You already know it. You're trying to control it and manage it and fix it, aren't you? And you've probably come to a place where you know you can't fix it, but you're still scared to let go of it. Right? And so even for those of us who are in Christ, there has to be this, this trusting of God the same way Jesus trusted the Father on the cross. God, into your hands, I entrust this to you. And I don't know what it is you're thinking about right now, but more than likely, it's a relationship. Most of our struggles in life are relational. Not all of them, but most of them. Relationship with a boss, a coworker, a spouse, a friend, a church member, a relative. And Jesus is saying to you, do you trust me? Yeah, I trust you. See my t-shirt? Trust Jesus. And Jesus is like, no. I'm like, do you really trust me? Like, there is no greater trust than to trust after you are dead. Think about that. Do you really trust God? Have you really given that over to him and said, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. So I want to stop here and pray for us today. That in whatever way God is speaking to you personally, that you will respond. And that might mean grabbing a prayer partner. It might mean just kneeling where you're at and praying to the Lord. It might mean that you stand and sing with the saints. It might mean that you grab an elder for a, for a longer conversation. Whatever it is that God's stirring in you, I'm going to pray right now as our worship team gets ready to come back up that you will respond. Let's pray together. And Father, we thank you for... God, even in the details of the burial of Jesus, we see a redemption story we see first of all the love of a father for a son we see the faithfulness of the messiah to fulfill the law even after death we see this powerful portrait of what it means to truly trust so god today help us to trust that way Help us to see you as one worthy of our trust. Maybe somebody here today, God, you're calling them to trust you for the first time, and right now they're scared to death. Father, I pray as we sing that, God, your spirit would give them a calm and that you would allow them to see your goodness and that you are trustworthy. God, for others of us, we claim to believe the gospel, yet we, we try to bear our own burdens. We say that we trust you with our salvation, but we don't trust you with our greatest struggles. And so today, Father, we're declaring together that we're entrusting you completely. Everything that we are. So Father, now as we prepare to respond, some of us are going to lift our voices. Some of us are going to bow in prayer. Some of us are going to grab somebody and have a conversation. But Father, we pray that your spirit would guide all of that. Lord Jesus, we trust you because you are trustworthy. We pray this in your name. Amen.